2 Peter chapter 3. This Advent season, we're thinking about not only the first Advent, when Jesus Christ was born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, born the king who would conquer the world. We're thinking not only about this first Advent, this coming of Emmanuel, God with us, but we're also thinking, as Christians have historically done, this isn't anything novel or new. It might be new or novel to us, but it's, it's not historically novel to the church at all. In fact, it's the pattern of the church during the Advent season, which just means coming. It's been the pattern of the church to think about not only Christ's first coming, but his second coming as well. He came the first time in meekness. He'll come the second time in power. He came the first time as a baby. He came the second time as a man. And he came the first time as a king who would be crowned. He'll come the second time as a king ready to rule and reign. And he came the first time to save. He will come the second time both to accomplish and finalize that salvation, but also to judge. And we're thinking about that second advent really for the good of our souls uh, over the course of this Christmas season this year. I want to read to you one of the most important passages in the entire Bible about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say the second coming of Jesus Christ anywhere in this passage, but it does speak of the day of God and the day of the Lord. And it's very clear from the references to uh, the destruction that he brings and the new creation that he brings that it is speaking about the return of Jesus Christ. And I want to read you this passage and we'll cover it as much as we can uh, in the coming moments. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all. The scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom 
given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, I, I found, I, I, I know I haven't read the whole chapter, but I, I tried to look all week uh, for a way to fit a little insight into this verse into my sermon. It never worked, so I'm just going to share it here. Um, this is just an amazing verse for our understanding of the Bible. Here, the apostle Peter, who we know walked with Jesus, uh, refers to the writings of the apostle Paul, who did not walk with Jesus, but rather became a Christian after Jesus had been raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Here we have the apostle Peter referring to Paul's writings as scriptures. So sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, the Christian Bible didn't even come together until like four centuries after Jesus died, and so how do we even trust it? Maybe those Gnostic Gospels they talk about on the History Channel are really something I should believe too. But actually the awareness that Scripture was being written in the days of the New Testament was dawning on the church even in that time. They were aware that they were now receiving Scripture. And here Peter acknowledges that he reads Paul, likes Paul, Finds Paul confusing sometimes, but recognizes that what he's written is Scripture. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, with the events of this last week, you know my mind and my notes and my thoughts are more scattered than I would like them to be. And Lord, we know it's important to study hard to show ourselves approved. And at the same time, we know that Preaching is not simply the accumulation of study, but happens under the active leadership and help and guidance and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be faithful to keep me glued to your truth, to guide your people to your truth, and that the preaching would be not a, a mess of confusion, but a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by telling you the story of Pastor Jay Haynes' dad. Now, some of you will remember Pastor Jay Haynes. Jay Haynes was sent out from Emmanuel to plant a church on the island of Maui. That church has actually been planted and continues to grow. And Pastor Jay is actually planting a sister, or is actually working at a sister church about 20 down, minutes down the road uh, from the church that was originally planted. Anyway, Pastor Jay's dad is by all accounts your stereotypical man's man. He's a builder, he's a contractor, he's a tough guy. And uh, one point, uh, Jay Haynes' dad was making himself some coffee. And like all wise people do, he was adding a generous dose of cream and sugar to the coffee. And uh, someone came along to Pastor Jay's dad and said, you know, real men drink their coffee black. To which he responded, real men drink their coffee however they want it. <laughs> and that confidence in the face of scorn is exactly what I want to instill in you this morning. There is a kind of confidence in the face of scorn that must be present for a Christian to grow into any kinds of maturity. If you wilt the minute someone tells you you're a loser for believing this or that thing or following this or that teaching of Jesus, you will never be able to grow to maturity in Christ. Growing to maturity in Christ requires embracing looking 
like a fool. I didn't say being a fool. But it requires embracing being what the Apostle Paul called a fool for Christ's sake. It involves having a confidence to stand even in the face of scorn. As I watch so many of our teenagers move into those college years and you watch what's gonna happen? Will they lock on to Christ and walk with him for the rest of their days or will they wither in their faith? This to my mind is a major piece. Are you willing to be wise in God's eyes alone, even in the face of scorn. This uh, instilling a confidence to stand, even in the face of scorn, is the burden of 2 Peter chapter three. And it's especially the burden, not just as it relates to Christian doctrine in general or the Christian life in general, but specifically as it relates to believing in the second coming, believing that Jesus is coming back. Peter is aware that his followers, those who have uh, followed Jesus and that he's responsible to love and care for, his beloved, you maybe heard that mentioned four times in this chapter, beloved, 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 his beloved are Christians who will be tempted when they're scorned to abandon their faith in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as we'll see, if you abandon your faith in the second coming of Jesus Christ, you will abandon following Jesus Christ closely. Now let me just kind of orient you to the passage. Let me orient you to the chapter. Let me first of all point out to you how it's clearly dealing with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Notice that when Peter summarizes the Bible that we're supposed to listen to, he summarizes it as the predictions of the holy prophets and the commands of Jesus from the apostles. You can see that in verse two, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. So he's speaking about the things which God's prophets have predicted. He's speaking about future events. And it becomes clear as we move on through the passage that the future events that are particular in his mind are the events of the last day, the day when God will judge the wicked and save those who have been redeemed. You see that in verse seven, you see the judgment in verse seven where we read, but the same word, by the same word, the word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see not only uh, destruction, but in verses 12 and 13, we see destruction and salvation. That what Peter is referring to here is a day not only when God will destroy the ungodly, but when he will usher his people into a completely renovated new heavens and new earth. And so we read that in verse 12 and 13. We are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to the promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness Dwell. And so clearly, the passage is speaking about the events that are um, foretold or predicted of the second coming. When Christ will return, the, the, the wicked will be judged, and the godly will be saved. Now, what Peter is concerned about, though, is that Christians are meant to hold on to this truth while other people are laughing at them, while other people are snickering at them, and in fact, while false teachers who have infiltrated the church are making them feel like they're fools for believing in such folly. We see that very clearly in verse three. He tells us to latch on to the predictions of the prophets, knowing, verse three, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. The Taylor Swift a paraphrase is scoffers gonna scoff, scoff, scoff. Anyway, knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, I'm sorry, following their own sinful desires. They will say, and here's the point, don't lose this. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
So Peter is sitting here proclaiming the promise of his coming, and he's aware that Christians are gonna have to hold on to this promise in the face of, of scoffers going, where is it? I don't see it. I don't see Jesus coming. He promised this years ago. We've been waiting decades now. He's not here. And how much worse for us? We've been waiting now 2,000 years for the return of Jesus. Easily a scoffer could use these very same words. Where is it? I don't see it. I'm not convinced. Looks to me like you're hanging on to what the communists would call the opiate of the masses. You're, you're hanging on to some sort of drug for your soul to make yourself feel better about all the miseries of this life. So Peter has shown us the second coming, verse two, verse seven, verse 12, 13. He shows us the scorn, verse three. And then he shows us his pastoral burden in verses 17 and 18. Here's his pastoral burden. Here's what he's burdened by. He's worried that this scorning will make the Christians crumble. He's worried that the mockery will make Christians kind of, uh, you know, kind of shave the edges off of their doctrine and not say things that look so dumb and not hold on to these truths. And so he says to them in verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this before and since I've warned you before and take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and notice this word and lose your own stability. Mature Christianity is not always electric, but it is always stable. It is rooted and grounded in the truths that God has revealed. The soul finds a rock in his truth so that when waves come crashing against our soul, there's a rock we hold on to, there's a refuge we have. And Peter is worried that if they lose the hope of the second coming, they will lose their stability. Anyone been tempted this week to lose their stability? Peter is eager to see the second coming of Christ pressed into your soul and mine so that we keep our stability even when the world jeers and mocks and sneers at the source of our stability. So he's giving us confidence to stand in the face of scorn. And what he does is he calls us to remember four things. He calls us to remember four things. And the first thing he calls us to remember is to remember. The first thing Peter calls these disciples to remember is that they need to remember. You ever thought about how much of the Christian life goes wrong when you just forget? You forget what's true. You forget what's right. You let it slip from your mind. You let it slip from your soul. And Peter, very aware of how the soul works, very aware of how the Christian life works, says, I am out to make sure you remember to remember. Look at that in verses one and two. He says, this is now the second letter. So it's like, hey, I put a sticky note in your lunch last week. You're gonna get a sticky note in your lunch this week. This is letter number two. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, when you put holy prophets together, probably referring to the holy prophets, of the Old Testament, and you put commands of Jesus through the apostles together, you basically have as close as you get to your Old and New Testament. You're basically having Paul, Peter tell us, you should remember the Bible. You should remember the Bible. Now, I wanna ask you this. Have you ever thought about how important it is in your Christian life just to show up every Sunday and have someone talk Bible to you for 40-ish minutes? We radically underestimate 
the importance of sitting under the Word of God, of giving God a weekly monologue in our lives, in a world that's constantly laughing at what we believe, casting shame on what we believe, casting doubt on our belief. The number one thing you can do to keep yourself in the faith is to simply park your backside in a chair once a week at least and listen to the Word of God. Do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but, but encourage one another every day. You know, the reason your grandparents went to church every week was not because they were old-fashioned. Well, it might have been, but here's what it ought to have been. It was because they understood their weakness apart from regular reminders. My friend Alex Duke has written a wonderful article. I just love this article. He's, How I Discovered the Ordinary Means of Grace is what the article is called. And he tells the story of being a college student. He loved Jesus, uh, but he didn't really have any background in healthy church. And he arrived at WKU in Bowling Green. And his friend said, hey, come to this church we're going to. And, and he says he got to this church And he says, I don't know how else to put it other than to say that the man up front looked aggressively ordinary. He could have passed for a pharmacist or your son's little league coach or a guy who sells bait at a tackle shop. And then he started preaching. Open your Bibles to Genesis 6, 1 through 8. He says he spoke carefully, he spoke slowly with a carefulness that to some could be mistaken as uncertainty. He says, and Alex Duke says, what happened over the next 40 minutes was as as bewildering as it was beautiful. Now I'd grown up in church, I'd read Christian books and led Christian Bible studies. I could explain how trusting in Jesus changes everything. I could have probably articulated the teleological argument for the existence of God. I'd raised my hands and worshiped. I'd wept at my own sins and the sins of my friends. I loved Jesus, but I'd never heard anything like this. Because this plain looking preacher with his well-worn Bible and his kind of pointless stool where he put his Bible that just stood there, explained and applied Genesis 6 to all who would listen, and I listened transfixed. The most important thing you can do in your Christian life is to find somebody with the humility, find some group of elders, some preacher, with the humility to say every week, I have nothing to say to you except what's in this book. If you leave Louisville, the most significant decision you can ever make is to make sure you find yourself a place that just opens the Bible and says what it says. If you leave Emmanuel, not something I'm trying to encourage you to do, at least leave to a place where they open the book and remind you of what it says over and over again. Nothing, nothing, nothing will be as important for your spiritual maturity. God will will throw in all the cancers and the career choices to make it feel relevant. He'll add all the details that make you hang on every word to need the reminder. But faithfulness is when a guy like Peter writes one letter and then another letter, and in both letters, he says the same thing, and the thing he says is, I need to remind you of what's in all the letters because that's what you need for the, sale, for the health of your soul. The first thing Peter does is he reminds us to remember. The second thing Peter does is he calls us to remember the character of false teachers. When you get thrown from the horse, as it were, of your theological convictions, when you get thrown from what you believe because there's someone laughing at you, sneering at you, mocking at you, calling into question, asking questions you don't have answers for, it's vital that you remember the character of the person doing the mocking. Christians are not people who hear challenges to their faith, 
plug their ears and run away. I've heard, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, told, I've heard this story of Christians attending a church and saying, when I asked the pastor a question about doubts I had, I was told I couldn't ask those questions here. Then where on earth can you ask them? Beloved, you have permission to have any question that could ever pop into a human mind. And it's the job of pastors and fellow members to try to give reasonable answers to those questions. But part of the answer will be asking about the character of the one raising the doubts. Notice that Peter says that he wants them to know the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles, but he wants us to know that at the same time, there will be scoffers who will come in the last days with scoffing. And I want you to notice that the scoffers' arguments are emotional, hypocritical, and intentional. They're emotional because they depend on scoffing. They depend on mockery. And mockery and scoffing actually isn't an argument. Sometimes you can feel like you're an idiot when you're being scoffed at, but the scoffer hasn't actually said anything to call into question something you believe, they've just mocked you. Uh, for those of you getting a good old classical education like a public school guy like me didn't get, let me just put it to you this way, scoffing is an ad hominem argument. It's an argument against the man. It's an argument against the person. It, just, it doesn't actually deal with anything you believe. It doesn't deal with any premises or any preposition or presuppositions that you've laid out. It simply attacks you as an idiot. And the, the, the function of a scoffing argument or a mocking argument isn't actually to get you to rethink what you believe. It's just to make you feel like an idiot. And so it actually only has an emotional force. And it is actually one of those places where you ought to say, loud as you can to yourself, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words can never hurt me. There really ought to be a sense that you can come at me calling, calling me an idiot, but you actually haven't given anything that should deride my faith. The second thing you need to notice is that the false teachers are not only emotional in the way they come at us, but they are also hypocritical. If you will look at verse three, you'll notice it says, knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Following their own sinful desires. Now listen to me. When someone comes up to you calling into question the core tenets of the Christian faith, they will never come like this. There's this girl I really want to sleep with. And it would be really handy if there wasn't a final judgment so I could sleep with her guilt-free. There's a sexual indulgence I want to indulge in, and it would be really helpful if there wasn't a final judgment for me to do that. It never come that way. After years of scholarly research, I was on Wikipedia last night, after years of scholarly research, I have honest questions about the second coming of Christ. But the fact is these, these things really are always linked with the moral component. The reason truth is doubted is moral. The reason people deny the reality of God and the judgment of God is not simply so they can be true to the facts. It's so that they can indulge in their wickedness. I remember Dr. Moeller saying years ago, something 20 years ago, that every major advance in philosophy in the last 200 years was to justify a particular and new sexual perversion. Oh, but they're so smart. I can't keep up. You, it is not an accident. It is not an accident, beloved, that the culture that believes that we are the product of lightning hitting a mud puddle and billions and billions of years of monkeys turning us into people and that denies the final judgment and denies the existence of God, it's not an accident that that culture is awash in sexual morality. Those aren't, those aren't incidental facts. They're related facts. That's how this goes. You deny the truth for a reason. You deny the truth so that you can indulge your sexual lusts. 
And so the sort of uh, the sophisticated veneer that often undoes the Christian, oh, there's someone smarter than me. Oh, there's someone with deeper questions than me, scoffing at me, making me feel like an idiot. You kind of got to, who are you sleeping with? What are you doing? What are you stealing? Is there anything ethical going on here? Because these truths do not get denied by people who come to the light. The people who come to the light love these truths. It's those who are hiding in darkness who love to invent reasons why the truth is not true. So Peter says, look at these false teachers. Don't ignore them. You can ask these questions. But notice they argue emotionally, scoffing at you. They argue hypocritically with ulterior motives. And they intentionally overlook the facts. They intentionally overlook the facts. Notice their logic. Their logic is flawless, by the way. It's just that their logic doesn't have all the facts. So notice what these false teachers do. They say, verse four, where is the promise of his coming? Where is he? He hasn't shown up yet. We don't see him. I don't see him on the horizon, do you? Where is the promise of his coming? And then they work it out like this. They say this. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, probably Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, maybe the early Christians, but ever since the past has gone by, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They go, listen, ever since the creation started, Tuesday follows Monday, two plus two equals four, things work in a recognized orderly pattern. Why would you expect us to believe there'll be some divine interruption? Why would you expect us for all of a sudden things to stop going the way they've been going and for them to be interrupted by a Galilean on a white horse coming down out of the sky? Why would you expect us to believe that? And uh, Peter does not you know, start you know, biting his nails and going, now that's good, I don't know what to do with that. He, he, he says, verse five, for they deliberately, they deliberately overlook this fact. They, they're saying the world always continues as normal. Tuesday follows Monday, Wednesday follows Tuesday. It just always goes like this. February follows January. But they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by, but by the means of these, the word that was then, that then, the world that then was, that existed, sorry, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now, that's a bit of a tricky sentence. At least for me, it was. but I think it fairly clearly refers to Noah's flood. The flood in the days of Noah. And if you're uh, into creation accounts, you may recognize very detailed language that Peter is picking up from Genesis chapter one. Remember, the spirit hovered over the waters. So before the world was given its form, it was essentially a mass of mist or water or whatever that God had spoken into existence and then shaped into the world which we now know. And during a time of extreme wickedness, you can find the record of this in Genesis 6 through 9, during a time of extreme wickedness, God plunged the world into a worldwide flood in which Everyone died except eight people, Noah and his immediate family. Now notice that Peter says they deliberately overlook this. Now you might say that's that's a bit of a that's a bit of a high expectation for the modern person. Because in our day, uh, we wouldn't accuse someone of deliberately overlooking the Noahic flood. Like if someone said to you, I deny the second coming because things just always continue the way they are, you probably wouldn't start with, you're forgetting Noah. And the reason is because in our day, Noah's flood is looked upon about the same as there were used to be gods on Olympus. It is viewed as some ancient mythology. But I tell you, it should not be it is perhaps the most well-documented historical fact of all time. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, in his commentary on Genesis, I've been waiting for years to get to use this, has an entire sermon 
an entire sermon called The Evidence of Flood Traditions. And he chronicles, now this is mind-blowing, 212 cultures with flood stories. In Alaska, the native peoples have a flood story. In Hawaii, the native peoples have a flood story. The American Indians of the, of, of this, of the continental United States have a flood story. And those flood stories often, not always, but often the character who's being saved has a name like No-U or Na-Ah. Boyce writes, there is much agreement between these 212 flood stories. In 88% of them, there's a favored family. In 70%, survival is due to a boat. In 95% of them, the sole cause of the catastrophe is a flood. In 66%, the disaster is due to man's wickedness. In 67% of these stories, animals are also saved. In 57%, the survivors end up on a mountain. Clearly, this event happened. And then as the peoples of the earth dispersed over the earth, it became passed on in the lore of every single people group on the planet. It is nothing but heinous historical neglect not to teach the reality of the Noahic flood. It is the demonstration which God has given to the whole earth that things don't just happen as Tuesday follows Monday, Wednesday follows Tuesday, February follows January, but that he is able and willing and has historically intervened in both judgment and salvation. And so what Peter is saying is he's saying, listen, they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? And he says, well, listen to me. The world doesn't just continue on without change. God has historically worked. He parted the Red Sea. He flooded the world through Noah. He moves in both salvation and judgment. And to not notice it is not an evidence of scholarly sophistication. It's an evidence of intentionally closing your eyes to the evidence. Now, you might be sitting here and saying, I don't believe in a worldwide flood, but I also didn't know there were 212 historical documents and records of it. Now you do. Now you know. Now you know that God intervenes like that. And on top of that, you need to know that what that means is what Peter says it means. Verse seven, but by the same word that brought the water flood, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire and being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. These things are sure, beloved. This is not God being inconsistent with his pattern of working. It's God being consistent with his pattern of working. Now, the third thing, that Peter calls us to remember is the character of God. He called us to remember to remember. He called us to remember the character of false teachers. Hey, don't just assume these guys have like descended on the clouds and they're uber godly and you should listen to everything they say. Look them right in the face and find out what they're all about and decide whether you should listen to what these guys are saying. But the third thing he says is he calls us to remember the character of God. Notice verse eight, but do not overlook this one fact. He said, hey, Christian, there's a fact you might overlook. You, you might be waiting for the second coming of Christ. You might be perplexed by how long it's taking. That might discourage you. It might make you susceptible to false teaching. It might rock you. It might make you unstable. Well, let me, let me suggest a fact to you. In fact, let me, let me insist that you shouldn't overlook this. What should I not overlook, Peter? I love it. Beloved, again. The whole, the whole argumentation is, is, a, is a loving father to people he loves. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What's being said here? It's being said is that God is an eternal being. 
And God, as an eternal being, does not count time the same way we count time. We sort of look at our lives, we're like, okay, I got 80 years, so I'm like, I need to get educated by the time I'm 20, hopefully get married somewhere in there. I'd like to have a career going by the time I'm 30. Whoa, whoa, I'm 50 and I haven't gotten any saved for retirement. Gonna die, gonna die. Like trying to, you're just trying to fit it all in to four score and 10, right? We're just trying to figure this all out. And, and of course, we expect God to work in our lives like, hey, if you could do a perfect 70-year novel right here, that'd be great. And God's like, I am not like an impatient teenager waiting beside the microwave for the three-minute popcorn to be done. That's not the way I work. And we actually know that greater beings always measure time different than lesser beings. That's why you got these cute, furry little animals at home, and you say that they are noticed in dog years, right? Because the fact is, your cute furry little friend, not a fur baby, no, not a fur baby, dog. Anyway, <laughs> nice dog, loving dog, wonderful part of the family, dog. Anyway, so the, the, the dog, we say, has to have its years measured differently than us, because they only tend to live about one-seventh of our lives. They're gonna on average live about 10 years, you're gonna on average live about 70 or 80 years, and so what do we do? Dog turns one, we say, well, it's like he's seven, you know? Dog turns three, it's like he's 21, right? And then dog dies, and we're like, it was like he was 70, right? Because the smaller animal with the shorter lifespan does not measure time the same way the greater being does. And let me tell you this, you are way closer to a dog than you are to God. God is infinitely higher than us. According to this logic, and it is poetic, the death of Jesus was about two days ago. Okay, zero to 1,080, day one. 1,080 to 2,080, day two. What are you doing, God? Why don't you hurry up? He's right on track. He's doing just fine. He is not going, now I'd really better pick it up here at the end. That's not what's happening. The greatness of God is displayed in how he can work out his salvation over generations. And I want you to notice something else and put this in your evangelistic pipe and smoke it. It says this, it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, what's Peter doing? He's reminding us that there's two kinds of slowness in the world. And we'll use a landlord to illustrate them. Right, you got one landlord who doesn't come to pick up the rent. And the reason he doesn't come to pick up the rent is the same reason he doesn't come to fix the roof or the faucet. It's because the guy's lazy. It's because he's just negligent. It's because he's not motivated to do what he'd said he would do. So he's slow to pick up the rent for the same reason he's slow to do everything else. Then you got another guy who's on top of picking up the rent, but he knows you don't have the money. And he's like, I'll wait another week. But his waiting is not because of his negligence, because of your need. He's waiting for your good, not because of his negligence. And in the case of God, the reason he allows evil to go on so long, the reason he allows the day of God not to happen so fast is for this, so that more and more and more people can repent. He's patient. Peter will say later in the chapter, count the patience of God as salvation. Beloved, what this meant to me as I was thinking about this this week was this, the reason today exists is so that the people I know can be saved. The reason there is another day is so that the people of Tunisia or Egypt, or Morocco, 
can hear the gospel. The main reason today exists is not primarily, I'm saying primarily, so that you can fit in all the things you need to do in your 80 years. The reason today exists is because God wants more people to be saved than are currently saved. And he's willing to prolong human history to get them into his kingdom. Which means that every time you rub the sleep out of your eyes, there ought to be this awareness. Today exists for evangelistic purposes. The reason the heavens have not been destroyed, the reason the final judgment has not come is this reason, patience. The patience of God. And as one preacher put it, Alistair Begg actually, if that were just to grip us for a minute, maybe we'd even just all leave the service right now and start calling friends and family who we know are under the imminent judgment of God but unbelievably have been given another day to repent. And, and maybe the phone call would look something like this. I, I know you know I'm a Christian, but I've been wanting to talk to you about this, haven't got a chance to talk to you about this. Can I talk to you about it right now, or could we have coffee this week? I, I just don't want to presume on the patience of God. For him, time is long, but for me, it's very short. And he's extended this day so that you can be saved. Well, I'll just mention my last point to you, and then I'll sit down. The Apostle Peter wants us to remember the character of a Christian. He wants us to remember to remember. He wants us to remember the character of false teachers, don't take him at face value. He wants us to remember the character of God. He's much bigger than you. If human history went to the year 10,000, 10 days. Okay, if we turn out to be the early church, that's okay. It doesn't mean Jesus is slow as some count slowness. It means he's abundantly patient and merciful for more and more people to be saved. And then... Peter calls us to remember the character of a Christian. And he just does it with this, this question. This is actually a good question to end on. Verse 11, here's the question. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since everything's gonna burn up, since a new creation is coming, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now, some of you might hear that. I, I, I can't sit down without saying this. Some of you might hear that and think, okay, the Christian life is God breathing down my neck. I'm gonna come and kill you unless you're good. Right? What sort of people ought you to be? I'm gonna judge the world. Shape up. But the, Peter's whole starting point is that, yes, the, the end of the world will come and destroy the ungodly, but the end of the world is good news for the Christian. It's good news because you have been saved and you will be saved. Because you have been saved by the blood of Christ and you will be saved from the very presence of sin when Christ comes. And, and just for verification of what I'm saying, just look where Peter goes from what I'm saying. Since all these things to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? Well, you should be these kind of people waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will, set, will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwell. So the believer is not sitting there saying, hey, the second coming's coming and you're gonna get killed if you don't shape up. That's not, that's not what's happening. It's the second coming's coming. If you walk in unbelief, you will be destroyed. But if you've believed you'll be saved. And the salvation will not just be personal, it will be cosmic. Last week we focused on personal salvation. When we see him, we will be like him. I will be, you couldn't improve on me in heaven. But the salvation 
that's coming is not just for me or for you. It's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. Now, most people don't get very excited about heaven, and I'll tell you why they don't get excited by heaven. It's because most of what they've heard about heaven is wrong. I mean, who's gonna get excited about having a chubby baby play them a harp on a cloud forever? Woo! Like, I don't even go for that kind of thing now. Like if someone were to say there's a show tonight, chubby baby playing the harp, I'm not going, I'm staying home, okay? I'm not into that. I like real, I like good food. I like people that I like, okay? And heaven is going to be full of lots of good food and all people I like. And like even the people I like, you know, at like 10, you're like, you should probably go home, right? Or you go see, you can hang with your family. Day one, so good to see you. Day five, you're like, we should probably all go home now. Okay, just for the good of this whole situation, right? But in heaven, just, why don't we do like 100,000 years together right here? That would be so awesome. And then we'll hook up again in a couple million and we'll eat fine wine and fine cheese, says Isaiah. Heaven is going to be a lot like earth, but new. Heaven is going to be a lot like earth, but without sin. Amen. And heaven's going to be a lot like earth, except instead of reminding yourself that this food points to the glory of Jesus or this ability to run points to the glory of Jesus, he'll be right there. The lamb will be the light. He will be present and enjoyed in every enjoyment of heaven. Every enjoyment of heaven will become an immediate and explicit enjoyment of him. So don't let anyone laugh at you, believing in the second coming. Be stable and steadfast when they sneer. And let that hope work itself out into all kinds of holiness and godliness in your everyday life. Father, we come before you and thank you for your help, for your word, for your future, for your son, Lord, we pray that you would please bless us with a great hope that transforms us and that we look forward to being fulfilled. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.